And this is the first time uh, for me to be back in the church for the Sunday evening doing Jonah. And uh, we are in chapter three of the book of Jonah, chapter three. And Jonah has arrived now in Nineveh, where God uh, is sending him. Uh, the book, uh, incidentally, neatly divides into two parts. Chapters one and two, God calls his prophets and he goes in the opposite direction. He's backslidden and God brings him to himself through the school of the belly of the whale. And then chapters three and four, after Jonah is vomited out of the whale, God's call comes to Jonah a second time. The God we believe in is the God of the second chance. And this time, because Jonah has been dealt with, he goes in the right direction and he finds himself in Nineveh. And Jonah brings God's message to Nineveh, not his own word. And God uh, pours his spirits upon Jonah and upon the inhabitants of Nineveh. And this is one of uh, the greatest revivals. That's what we call an outpouring of the spirits in the whole of history. It's before the day of Pentecost. You do have outpourings of the Spirit in the Old Testament. But now, since Pentecost, we're living in the age of the spirits, And uh, it's a great need for our country uh, that we, as a people, are revived. And if God could bring revival to Nineveh, then I believe he could bring revival to Cardiff. Do you? It's the need of the hour. And Jonah wasn't sent to Nineveh as a revivalist. Very important, that. He was sent as an evangelist. And when you read about all the great revivals, including the ones in the New Testament, it was the gospel that was preached. That's what the Spirit blesses. Now, Jonah, uh, the first day he arrived in Nineveh, he preached. So let's take up that account. Jonah chapter 3. And we're told... Uh, halfway through verse 3, halfway through verse 3 of Jonah 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? It would take three days to go around Nineveh. Jonah was the only person in Nineveh with the gospel. No one else could tell 
the people the way to be reconciled with God. I wonder, uh, West Wales, you can travel around West Wales. How many chapels are there today in West Wales that will tell you the gospel? We need revival as much as Nineveh did. And maybe there's more of us than there was of Jonah. But my friends, we as the people of God are the only ones who have this gospel. Uh, what, what I'm afraid of for the evangelical churches is that we go down the same path as some of the denominational churches. Now, there are excellent denominational churches today, but the one I was brought up in didn't preach the gospel. We did all sorts of other things, but I never heard the gospel till I went to an evangelical church. The gospel. And we need the Spirit, as we looked at last time, to come upon the Word. Uh, listen to uh, Jeffrey Bull. Jonah stands the sole trustee of saving truth amongst a million Gentile souls. The rustic prophet from Gathhefer, he was a country bumpkin, <laughs> holds God's own answer to their need. This time he will not fail, nor will he sleep. Don't you feel a bit like that? Before, Jonah was just obsessed with other things. He was a prejudiced a religious person, and he wouldn't go to that wicked city of Nineveh with the gospel. Oh, may we not be busy making daisy chains, whatever those daisy chains are, when a world is hurtling to a lost eternity. May we wake up. That's what revival does. It wakes up the people of God and cause us to bring the truth and the power of the spirits to our society. You know, it's not just Cardiff or Nineveh that needs revival. It's us. It's me. Do you feel like that? Uh, Chesterton, C.K. Chesterton, he said this. Today, in the West, it is not just the world, but the church that has lost the sense of the absence of God. We've lost that sense of God, haven't we? That glory. Uh, Duncan Campbell described revival when the Spirit comes down as a community saturated with the presence of God. That's what we need. We need to be revived so that unbelievers are Affected. It was a motto of the 1904 revival in Wales. Bend the church and save the people. Isn't that good? Bend us, the church, and through that, save the people. God dealt with Jonah first. And through his dealings with Jonah, he saves the Ninevites. Is God dealing with you? Is God dealing with us as a church? in order that through that, those roundabouts are brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what happens then in Nineveh under Jonah's preaching? That's what we're going to start looking at tonight. I don't think I've got enough time to go through everything. We'll need two sermons, but we can make a start tonight. What's the effect of Jonah's preaching in the power of the Spirit upon these people? Or to put it in another way, 
what happens when there's revival? What, what would it look like if God started waking us up? One word. There's repentance. The people of Nineveh repent. I've spoken before about this. You need to ask Maureen about the details. Um, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s, there was an awakening, another word for revival, in Romania, Moldova. And they called it the repentance of the repentant ones. Repentant ones are Christians. And it was the Christians who repented. They turned back to the Lord. That's what repentance means. It means a turning, a change. Now, what are the marks of that? That's what I want us to look at. What can we see from the Ninevites uh, about repentance? And what will be the marks here if God starts to do uh, work of reviving in our midst? Well, the first thing, this is the first mark we see amongst the people of Nineveh. And it's not an easy one, right? There's a humbling. There's a humbling. Now, where do I find that? Uh, well, let me read first, Second Chronicles 7.14. The, this describes revival, what happens. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves, humble themselves, and call upon my name and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. Now, how do we see this humbling in the Ninevites? Uh, if you look at uh, Jonah starting to preach, verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. He couldn't wait. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed, and this is the sign, they proclaimed a fast. They proclaimed a fast. What does that mean? It's not so much that uh, they didn't eat. Of course, it includes that. But what's significant is this. They are so pricked in their hearts about their sin and about their danger that they fast. Uh, they don't bother with food. It's as if they're telling the Lord, Lord, we're serious about this. And then the other thing is they put on sackcloth. Uh, this was a rough material. And um, if you've ever... Uh, worn um, sackcloth not that I've worn it but I'm told by the commentators that it's very uncomfortable and this is what happens when we're humbled we, we're pricked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and we're made to feel uncomfortable it's like having a cold shower it's good for you but oh my it's really horrible isn't it it wakes us up but it definitely makes us feel uncomfortable Jonah, he was a nobody. Um, I'm using my imagination now. He wasn't dressed in fine clothes. He probably didn't wear a suit. He was from Gath, Hepha, from the back of beyond in Israel. And he was coming to this great metropolis. And this little man stood in the Times Square of Nineveh and just cried out his simple 
message, the word of God. And boys back, there was power. And he could see the people pricked in their hearts. That, that's what happens. We, we don't need great public speakers. It doesn't even have to be a preacher. It can be you, me. The power of the Spirit. Think of a fisherman. A fisherman who's been a failure. Uh, he's done the worst possible thing. Denied his master. And now what's happening? This fisherman with no education is standing up. And 3,000 people are humbled. They are pricked in their hearts. That's Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost. That's repentance. This humbling. This convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I want to give an example from the 1859 revival uh, I want to educate you with what happened in Wales. Some of you will know the details, but it's worth repeating. In 1859, uh, uh, there was um, somebody in the college in Bala studying theology, and he says, these two men from Cardiganshire came. Two plain men from Cardiganshire, like Jonah. And they preached Jesus Christ simply and unaffectedly, without much culture or eloquence, but they had more. Eternity pervaded the service. Heaven was in that place. A person is just cut to the core. Humbling, humbling. It's interesting here that it's the king as well who put sackcloth on uh, what significance is this? Verse 6. Then word came to the king of Nineveh. He had a report of what was happening in the city. You can imagine. It's not just ones or twos that are being humbled. Uh, crying out for mercy. Uh, we can imagine some of them maybe falling on their faces. We can imagine others weeping copiously. And multitudes. Probably hundreds, if not thousands. And the king gets to hear of it. Just a report of it. And he's humbled as well. And what's significant is that the king puts sackcloth on. And the king sits in ashes. He takes off his kingly robe. His fine garments. And he's the same as everybody else. This is bull again. If you want a commentary that reads like a novel... Um, don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> a commentary that grips you. Read Bull. He doesn't always explain the verses. But this is what he says. Sackcloth makes level. Is that good? Sackcloth makes level. It tells of grief, not merely for a sad event, but for the sin that makes us vile. It's wearing bears true witness to the bankrupt states. It says that we are beneath God's grace. All else is pride. Sackcloth is the leveler. My friends, when God is at work, we all realize we're in the same place. We're all sinners. And our only hope is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what I love about the church. Whatever position we may have outside, we are leveled by the grace of God. And this humbling is always part of repentance. In the 1904 revival, uh, when the king in Nineveh, in Nineveh had the reports of what was happening in the city, that humbled him. 
It wasn't the word of God. It was the reports of what was happening. In the 1904 revival, was it R.B. Jones, the preacher, or was it somebody else? All he did was read the extracts from the Western Mail of what was happening in parts of Wales in the revival, and people were humbled before him. Isn't that amazing? You don't often hear of that happening when people read the Western Mail, do you? It's the Spirit of God at work, uh, humbling uh, the people. Have we been humbled? Aren't we too proud? We need a work of the Spirit, don't we? To level us, to bring us down. And what's really interesting here, it's the people who are first affected, and they then affect the bigwigs in society, the king and the palace. So the king issues a royal decree. And there's, there's something quite scary about the decree, isn't there? Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. So if you can imagine, not only the people fasting, but the cattle fasting and the sheep fasting. And have you ever heard... Um, a cow or a sheep that's really hungry. It's a horrible sound. It's, it's horrible. And we can imagine the wailing of the people and the wailing of the cattle and uh, from the palace down to the hovel, all are brought down. That's the first sign of repentance, humbling. There's no points uh, talking about repentance unless we're humble. It's the vox populi, it's the people, it's the common people here who are influencing the great and the good. Often God begins among the people. So that's the first sign, humbling. Have we been humbled? Uh, we sang, didn't we? Do we mean this? Come, let us, it's corporate, not just individual. Come, let us to the Lord our God with contrite, broken hearts return. Our God is gracious, nor will he leave the desolate to mourn. Do, do we feel humbled because of sin? Do we hate the sin, not so much the consequence? I know we need to have the fear of God in terms of not wanting to go to hell. But do we fear sin as sin? That's what really humbles. The second thing, the second sign here, is what? Not just humbling, but turning. Turning. Uh, come back to Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face and shall turn from their wicked ways... And this is what we see here uh, in uh, Nineveh. Uh, so uh, they proclaimed a fast, verse 5. Uh, they show these outward signs of contrition, of mourning for sin, of being humbled. And then the king hears about it and he proclaims a decree. We've looked at that briefly. And then verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone, here it is, 
turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It's not just that we're brought low. It's not just that our hearts are broken because of sin. It does something to us, you know. Uh, what, what I can say this, right, because I'm a Welshman. What, what do they say about us Welsh people? Um, that it's easy to get a Welshman to cry. Uh, we're emotional people. But it takes an earthquake to get a Welshman to change his mind. Isn't that true? So, tears don't mean anything to God in and of themselves. What's important is we change our minds. That's the root meaning of repentance. And that shows itself in action that we turn from our sin. Uh, J.I. Packer, who went to be with the Lord recently, he put it brilliantly. He said, repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. And what we find really important here is we're told what sin the Ninevites turned from. Uh, look again at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. From the violence. Do you notice in that verse, you've got the singular, let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence, that's plural. The city of Nineveh was renowned for its violence. It was called the city of blood as a result. And what the preaching of Jonah does under the Spirit is pinpoints the besetting sins of the people. John the Baptist, another great preacher, he preached Christ, didn't he? But he also preached repentance. And he didn't just say repent, he said, bring forth fruit to prove your turning. And then, do you remember what happened? The people asked him, what shall we do? And he specifies, doesn't he, to each group what they should do. So he says, for example, to the soldiers, uh, don't do violence. There's a word I discovered preparing the sermon. <laughs> it's the word compunction. That's a good word, isn't it? Can I say it again? Compunction. What does it mean? It means that we're pricked. Well, it means we're stabbed. And it just moves us to change. Uh, let me read some New Testament verses here. This is compunction. 2 Corinthians 7. Incidentally, we're not thinking of remorse, right? We're not thinking of remorse. When a person is remorseful, maybe they feel gutted for something wrong that they've done. And it just leads them to bemoan their condition, and it leads them eventually to despair. Think of Judas Iscariot committing suicide. That's not repentance. Repentance is a person feeling convicted, humbled, sorrowing for sin, and that leads them to do something that takes them closer to the Savior. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this describes this compunction, not remorse, but repentance, not legal repentance, evangelical repentance. Uh, this is how it is put. 
if I can get used to this Bible again. I'm getting used to the Bible I've got in my study, you see, so I'm trying to find my way around this pulpit Bible again. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, to an actual turning. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. This is compunction, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And then you've got this uh, description, verse 11, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In other words, there is a change, isn't there? There is this hatred of sin, but instead of producing remorse which leads more to self-pity and despair this leads to uh, turning from sin uh, a vehement turning from sin and a turning to the Lord it's a change of direction again I wonder what is our besetting sin there's personal repentance, so we've all got our personal besetting sins. And there's corporate repentance. As a people of God, we have sins we need to repent of. And as a nation, we have things to repent of. Have you read Daniel's prayer? Daniel wasn't to blame for what happened to the people of God. Daniel was making a stand. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. But Daniel in his prayer doesn't say they, he says we. He puts himself with the people. Maybe we can say that the sins of our age are licentiousness, a sexual immorality, all rights. But let's get closer to home. What are our besetting sins? They may be something quite different. I find it interesting that this word violence, which was true of Nineveh, it can be translated oppression, oppression. And this is what I find interesting, that when the people of God backslide, it is often these kind of sins, we call them respectable sins, that they need to repent of. That's why I read from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah uh, prophesied to a very religious people they were still moral people but God is saying to them in effect look I've had enough of your religious uh, deeds uh, they stink before me uh, he says this, wash yourselves, chapter 1, verse 16 of Isaiah, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And in Isaiah 58, the people would have fast days and they thought they were pleasing God doing that, but God didn't hear their prayers. And God is saying to them, this is the fast that I want you to do. I want you to loosen the burden that you are placing on people I want you to love those who are outside I want you to defend those who are defenseless my friends this is maybe the danger of us religious people 
You had it in the New Testament with Jesus Christ facing the religious leaders. I've mentioned um, Duncan Campbell. He was used of God in the Hebrides. Uh, Isle of Lewis. That's the last revival this country experienced uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And there were a group of deacons praying for revival. This happened before, I think, Duncan Campbell arrived. And they were praying in a barn. <laughs> uh, and they, they were seeking God for revival, right? And then one of the deacons stops and he says to them, this is humbug. And he wasn't thinking of the sweets, right? Uh, humbug is an old word for hypocrisy. He says, this is false. How can we seek God for revival if we are not right? If we haven't put things right? And he went on to quote, uh, it's a well-known account. You can hear it on tape if you listen to Duncan Campbell's accounts of the revival. And he quoted Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol and not sworn deceitfully. And then he looked at his hands and he said to his friends, are my hands clean? Are our hands clean? What's the point of all this praying? What's the point of all this fasting? If we haven't got clean hands, our hands, the things we use in everyday life. You know, sometimes we can be too spiritual for our own good. I wonder sometimes why we haven't witnessed a mighty work of the Spirit of God in our generation there are parts of the world, and I've had the privilege of visiting them, where there is, I wouldn't call it revival, but there is a move of the Spirit. And the people there are much less privileged than we are. But somehow, they're just more real, aren't they? May our hands be clean. What, what are besetting sin? I can't say what your besetting sin is. I'm not a prophet. But are you ready to ask God to search your hearts. Search me, O oh God. My actions try. You know what? You can be real with Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? There's no ways or graces about him. You can just go to him and say to him, Lord, make me real. Thank God he hears that prayer. Lord, I may not be what I'm supposed to be. I, I may fall short of so many things, but Lord, let me be real. Can you pray that? Start where you're at. So these are the two things we see in the Ninevites. Under Jonah's preaching, the Spirit comes, revival. And it's not an easy thing, revival, not to begin with. It's uncomfortable. There is humbling. And that humbling causes a turning, an actual turning from sin. Let me mention another revival just to show how practical this is. Uh, there was a man, W.P. Nicholson, nicknamed W.P. He preached between the two world wars in Ulster in Northern Ireland. And some people think it was because of the revival under W.P. Uh, that 
the violence that Northern Ireland later saw didn't happen sooner. And there was a mighty awakening in Ulster between the first uh, two uh, world wars. And there were people converted, the common people working in the Harland and Wolf shipyard, that big shipyard in Belfast. And one sign of a work of the Spirit in their hearts, one sign of their repentance was this. Suddenly they started returning items that they'd borrowed. <laughs> they, you know, most of the time, we don't think things are sinful, do we? But when the Spirit comes, and when there's a compunction, we just see things that we sometimes take for granted. We see them as sinful. And so these poor people were returning all these items. And do you know what they had to do? They had to build a brand new warehouse. <laughs> so many items had been returned. Isn't that practical? I wonder, could it be such little foxes that are spoiling the vine? I want to come on. I'm not going to have time tonight. It's two bigger points. But let me just mention it briefly. The third sign of repentance in the people of Nineveh. I don't want anybody leaving thinking that repentance is something legal, something you have to grit your teeth and get on with, you know? Uh, the third sign, and it's what makes it evangelical, not legal repentance, is that the people believed. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Do you want to repent more? How do you do it? You don't look within, right? As Robert Murray McShane said, for every look within. How many looks do you give to Christ on the cross? I can't remember what McShane said. Is it seven? A perfect number? Let's say it's seven. <laughs> for every look within, give at least seven looks to the cross. That's what produces repentance. Zachariah, uh, he said in chapter 12, they looked upon him that they had pierced, and they mourned. That's why, even though Jonah, we're told here, preached a message of judgment, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, it was the gospel in the end that produced repentance. Because as Jesus said, Jonah was the sign of Jesus Christ, wasn't he? Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, a sign of Jesus being in the grave for three days. And Jonah vomited from the belly of the whale, a sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did another country bumpkin, Peter, already mentioned on the day of Pentecost, what did he preach? He didn't just tell people that they needed to repent. He preached Christ, didn't he? Crucified. Risen, that's what leads to repentance, ultimately. And that's what we need more time to look at. And God willing, uh, we will proceed uh, next Lord's Day. But let me just quote this as I finish. Uh, I think we're going to sing it. Oh, wouldst thou, do you have this burden? Oh, wouldst thou again be made known? Again. In thy spirit descend and set up in each of thine own a kingdom that never shall end. Thou only art able to bless 
and make the glad nations obey and bid the dire enmity cease and bow the whole world to thy sway. Do you have a burden? And then you can pray. Come then to thy servants, preachers again, who long thy appearing to know thy quiet and peaceable reign. Not violence, not violence. The Holy Spirit isn't violent. The Holy Spirit is gentle. Yes, he convicts, but he's gentle. Thy quiet and peaceable reign in mercy established below. And doesn't our society need this? All sorrow before thee shall fly and anger and hatred be awed. It's not Christianity anger and hatred, is it? It's religion and envy and malice shall die and discord afflict us no more. I long for that in Cardiff, you know that the people of God, that the churches may be in this time of lockdown, that we would have a spiritual coming together in seeking the Lord, that we would put behind us any differences that may have divided us and that we may resolve together to ask God to make Jesus Christ real again to us so that this city, this Nineveh of a city, would come believe (laughs) in the Saviour. Praise God. He's still got a witness. He's still got a witness in Wales, hasn't he? And may we be a witness to the Saviour. But may we pray, Lord, wake us up. Revive us so that through us, a society might be saved. May God bless us in this, for his name's sake. Amen. Now we're going to sing uh, from our hearts again, um, the hymn that uh, I've already quoted from. I couldn't quote it all. It's got four stanzas. All glory to God in the sky. And we've got a reference to Bethlehem uh, in the first verse. So... uh, This is going to prepare us for uh, the first advent of Jesus Christ. So we'll stand again uh, and we'll praise God by the singing of all glory to God in the sky.
that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, and not only mountains, but hearts, O oh God. May our hearts uh, be uh, stabbed, as it were, by thy Spirit, uh, so that we who can be so proud by nature are brought down and we turn from our wicked ways and turn to thee, the only one who can heal us. Lord, we thank thee that thou art a God who heals the backslider, that thou canst restore all the years, and they seem long years now, that the locust have eaten. We thank thee, O God, we can say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we ask that Jesus Christ might visit us. Now may his grace and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.